0: Joy to be with you again tonight as we continue our series through the book of 1 John. And tonight we're going to talk about the Christian mark of morality, the Christian mark of morality. But before we do, let's uh, pray together one more time. Oh Lord, now we just ask that you'd bless us through your servant, John Lord, who wrote to this Christian community Lord, nearly 2,000 years ago, but Lord, you have something to say to us tonight. And so, Father, I just pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe and trust and obey all that you have written to us. And help us stand firm, God, today in the day of, of many competing voices. Lord, I pray that you'd help us stand firm in the truth. And so, bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And so it's, it's always important to remember the, the context of the book as we continue this series. It's, 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 of course, it's relevant to us. There was these false teachers, these, uh, you know, we talked about John calls them antichrists. They had embraced false teaching and apparently uh, unrighteous living. And uh, it's important for us because false teaching abounds today. You know, A um, person on TV says they're a Christian, but then they embrace a lifestyle forbidden in the Bible. There are churches in various places that abound who are keen on affirming anything and everything except God and that, what his word actually says. But of course, if you don't know, then you would, you would wonder, you know, what is true? And uh, these, these false teachers had unsettled this church. And John says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you how you can know. Not only if you're truly of God, but the way you can evaluate others in the sense of knowing, are they truly of God? Are they trustworthy God in the faith? Or is something not right? And I need to look elsewhere. And so that's the context of John. That's what we want to uh, talk about, pick up kind of where we left off last week. Uh, and this week with the Christian Mark of Morality. The Christian Mark of Morality. So, if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. From First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Verse 4. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The Word of God. You may be seated. So, we're really just going to look at... um, Two broad points uh, this evening. And the first one is this. The Christian cannot live in sin because there is no sin in God. The Christian cannot live in sin because there is no sin in God. We see this primarily in verses 4 through 7, which we just read. So, again, remember that John is writing to strengthen and to stabilize the Christian community, whom he regularly calls his his children, right? So he loves them. He views himself as their spiritual Father, and he feels a you know one of the primary roles of a father within the household is to be the protector of his family, and it's his responsibility to protect his children, his Christian children, from false teaching. And there is this group of people who had a, who had left the community. They claim some kind of new spiritual wisdom or insight concerning the nature of Christ, and their false doctrine led them to practice all kinds of sin and basically whatever they wanted to do. And so John continues what we began talking about last week is he's elaborating on what we might call the moral test. The moral test. That is, there is a a moral test. There is, again, our morality as Christians does not save us, but as John explains here, (laughs) if we're of God, we're going to be changed. And and that is the test uh, that he is uh, talking about. Last week we talked about he, he said that those who belong to the righteous God must themselves practice righteousness. And then he explodes in this adoration of God, as we talked about last week, as he contemplates God's love for us that we might be called children of God. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we might be called children of God. For John, being born of God is this incredible, unbelievable, unsearchable gift of grace. That God has given to us. but And what it also means is that it has concrete implications for our lives. We have a new hope and a new destiny. And, and as we talked about last time, that hope purifies us now in the present time. Knowing that our destiny is a future without sin. Without the ability to sin in a world free from sin. And so John said that what we one day will be has not yet appeared. But it... It's all it must already be working itself into our lives, but Paul said that we have the first fruits of the spirit, that is that the that the beginning of the spiritual work god God's already working on in us now who he will one day fully make us then, and so there should be evidence of that in our lives and John continues here by saying kind of an interesting verse. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, now what does that mean? If you, if you look at the New Testament, the word lawlessness seems to refer to that which is set up against God. It is the power in this present world that opposes God. And it is those who are captivated by such, a, are controlled by such a mindset. For example, Paul calls the Antichrist, so, so th- th- got, we've got to make the connection here. Because John has talked about Antichrist in this letter as well. And then he associates them with, now uh, in 3.4, in, in with lawlessness. Well, Paul says that he calls the Antichrist, he actually doesn't use the word Antichrist. He calls him the man of lawlessness. And he calls that the spirit, the spirit that is already at work in our in, in this age, he calls it the mystery of lawlessness. And so this the word lawlessness seems to kind of have this connotation of that which is set up or opposed to God. Jesus, for example, in speaking of the context of false prophets, uh Goes on to say that he will say to those on the last day, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Of lawlessness. And so in the New Testament, lawlessness has this idea of being spiritually opposed or set against God. And therefore, it only makes sense then that lawlessness has a close association with the devil, which is why we have this connection in this very passage where he talks about sin as lawlessness. And then if you practice sin, you're of the devil. And so it's this connotation of being opposed to God, and so and so if we practice a life of sin, so it seems to be what John is saying is this: when he says um, when he says, "Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness." Sin is lawlessness. What he's trying to communicate is that if we make a practice of sinning in our lives, if our lives is characterized not by obedience to God, but just by doing me doing whatever I want to do, then what John is saying is that we are captivated then. We are captivated by the spirit of lawlessness. We are among those who have set ourselves up against God. We are in concert with the devil and his angels and the false prophets. And we are among those who received that condemnation. Depart from me, I never knew you. And so John, I think, is trying to communicate the force Of a life that is characterized by sin, it's not just, it's not just you know you doing you. It is lawlessness. That is, it is you in and of yourself setting yourself up as in opposition to God, right along in the same manner of the devil himself. And so that's why John, so and so John associates these people who have left this Christian community. He calls them, as we said, antichrists. They have they left the true community for some scintillating but false understanding of Christ, and we're embracing sinful lifestyles as part of this. And so he is identifying them with lawlessness, the spirit of the age that is diabolic in origin and is to opposed to God. And so <laughs> it, it's, he's saying it's no small thing to be engaged in sin because it is lawlessness, it is direct opposition to God. And then John continues in saying, verse 5, you know that he appeared... In order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And so, John is just, he's using simple logic here. It's not, the idea that he's trying to communicate is not super complex. Jesus came on a mission to do many things but to do really one primary thing to glorify God through taking away our sin. So it doesn't take you know a genius to come to the to conclusion that John is drawing here and that is this. If Jesus came to take away sin, you can't live in sin and say that you abide in him who came to take away sin. It doesn't make sense. It's impossible. You can't you can't say that you abide in Christ that you know Christ and live in sin when his, the very purpose for which that one came or Christ came was to take away sin and that in him there is no sin and so and so he's just he's trying to just make this crystal clear here and he's trying to help them see you know he, and he do, again he doesn't want them to be deceived he wants them to help to understand it's like look if someone is over there and they're living in sin, and they're, set, they're setting themselves up against God, then you might not need to listen to what they have to say about their theology. <laughs> Look elsewhere, because this is a test. This is, this is how we can know. And by the way, the church is interesting because John is writing to this Christian community about 2,000 years ago, and we have the same exact problems today. The church in every age has faced the problems of false professors and false teachers. Those who claim to know and believe the truth, but their lives speak something contrary to that. But John does not want the true believers to be deceived. A life of sin is unequivocally incompatible with a life in Christ who came to take away sin. And so that's how you know Jesus. Remember, it's really the same thing that Jesus taught when He says, "You'll know them by their fruits." Right? You'll know them by their fruits. And so you can look all throughout. You can look all throughout history and just see um, all all the cults that have been started. And you look at their leaders and look how they lived and look how they treated people. And you'll know they should have known. They should have known that what that person was saying wasn't true. And John, and, John is, and John is telling us and urging his believers to say, look, if their lives bears the fruit of true righteousness and humility and love and repentance, and, and is clinging to the, the, these tests that John has laid out, you might need to listen to what they have to say. But if they're, if they're way over here on the deep end saying things that the Bible clearly uh, does not teach, you don't need to listen. You don't need to pay attention to them. And so uh, these passages here are very interesting because um, practice, like my translation says practice of sinning. You know, in verse 6 it says, abides in him, keeps on sinning. The Greek is kind of a little more simplistic than that. It's like sins. I mean, if you read it, it makes it sound like if you're a Christian, you just won't sin at all. But I think these are good translations. I'm not sure what your translation says because it's clear what John has is a, is, a, is a practice of sinning. That is, I don't believe what John is teaching as some people have taught of some kind of Christian perfectionism or that is that some way or another we can be perfect in this life. I don't think that's what John is saying. And plus, I think it would contradict what John said in chapter 1 where he says, um, for example, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so in other words, he's not, he does, he's not envisioning that we will never sin. What he is saying, what he's envisioning is a life that is characterized by sin. And look, you know. You just know. You can look at someone's life and see how they live their life and see the general tenor of their life. And you can know whether they're living up under the lordship of Christ or they're just doing what they want to do. And that's how we know. And so that's what he's talking about. Is what is the general tenor of my heart. And this is a good opportunity for us to do, you know, anytime we read the scriptures, we should never think, oh, I'm glad John is saying that to them people over there. That's always the danger. We should always stop for a moment and say, Lord, what's the tenor of my life? Lord, God, search me. Do I live life in such a way that my unbelieving friends would say, hey, if I want to know something about God... I need to talk to him. Your life says that. You can live a certain life that that says to people that that deep down they can just innately know, hey, that person, I bet he's a reliable guy because I can see the way he lives his life. I'm going to go talk to him about the Lord. Does our life accord with what we proclaim? Is the, fundamental, is the fundamental posture of our hearts one of submission to God and desire to please Him and honor Him in all that we do? Or is the fundamental posture of our hearts, I'm just going to do me? Because that, that really is the mantra of the world. And what John is saying here is that if we have really known God, it's going to change us. It's going to change us. In verse 6, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In other words, John, is crystal clear for John, if we have seen God and known God, that has to change us. It has to. Seeing God, it, it it changes us. We talked about last time, and the passage just before this one, we, 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 theologians refer to it as the beatific vision that the, merely beholding the, the glorified Christ with our eyes when he descends from heaven will change us. When God, when Moses was on the mountain and said, God, please show me your glory, and he saw the backside of God's glory, he came down from the mountain and the people couldn't even stand to look at him. When we have seen God and when we have known God, it changes us. And that's what and that's all John is saying is if look, if we've seen and known God, it has changed us, and that's the test. That's the test. In verse 7, John goes on and says, "Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous." And so In other words, the test can kind of work both ways. If false professors are known by their sin, then true Christians are known by their righteousness. If we really do abide in God, if we really do abide in the one who is without sin, and who came to take away sin, and we really have united with him by faith, then we really will be changed, we really will be different, and we really will bear a a life of righteousness and bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives and you know we could think about this a little deeply and say and say you know well that seems a little simplistic doesn't it because you know maybe you can think of somebody and say well they seem like a pretty good person externally speaking but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a christian well I think what John, first of all, John is speaking to specifically to this Christian community about those who have professed faith in Christ and who have left this community. But I do think that his principle stands true generally as well when we understand what the biblical meaning of righteousness is. And that is that even those who seem to live an externally fairly righteous life, according to the Bible... According to the Bible, even such a life is sinful apart from faith in God. Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For, who, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so, think about it. If we don't know God, then... <laughs> Really, everything we do is sin because everything that we do is rooted in unbelief. We don't like to think about it that way, but it's true. Because everything that we do is predicated on a false view of reality. That there isn't a God when there really is. And everything that we do is grounded not out of a desire to please God and to glorify Him, but a desire for something else. Whatever that desire may be. And so again, Christianity, is not, true righteousness is not just about what we do, but it's about our heart motives. And if our, Paul gave the command, every, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you eat and don't do it to the glory of God, you're sinning. Anything that we don't do to give glory to God is sin. And so, any act done by anyone that's not rooted and grounded in a proper understanding of the reality of who God is, and that is not ultimately motivated our desire to please and glorify Him, the Bible says that is sin. And when we see it that way, it makes perfect sense. That anyone, yes, anyone who practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. That is anyone whom you can look in their life and tell that the life they live, they live not just because they're a good old boy, but because they have a true, pure desire in their heart to please the God who loved and saved them, then you can know that God is in them and that God, that they are righteous as he is righteous. And so let us not be deceived, John says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And so this again is a a plea for us for self-examination. Am I I entangled in some kind of sin? Is there some sin in your life that maybe is gripping you right now? If it is, then the biblical answer is the same for everything repent, turn, flee, run, confess it, get some accountability. Don't just keep it a secret, but tell somebody, if you're struggling with something, don't just suffer in secret. Tell somebody about it. Get some help. Confess it, repent, turn of it, turn from it. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If there's some temptation that you face in your life and you find yourself on a regular basis succumbing to that temptation, then don't just, don't just roll over, take some drastic action. To make it happen. Tell somebody. Trash your phone. Trash your computer. Get rid of the internet. You know, uh, quit your job. You know, move. Do whatever you have to do to keep from sinning. If that's what it takes. If that's what it takes. Number one, the Christian cannot live in sin. Because there is no sin in God. So if there is sin and we know God, then we know this, that the Holy Spirit will not allow us to stay there. But He's going to convict us. And we must do the hard work of repentance to come back to Him. Otherwise, we may find ourselves in the same position of these others who John calls the Antichrist who have set themselves up against God even though they were once among the community. So number one, the Christian cannot live in sin because there is no sin in God. And, and number two, the Christian cannot live in sin because he's been born of God or she's been born of God. The Christian cannot live in sin because he's been born of God. He, he continues there in verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so John here moves on to the next component of his argument for the moral test. And the next component of the argument concerns the uh, concept of our spiritual origin. Our spiritual origin. And so John is simply going further here to say that the root of our sinning or the root of our righteousness ultimately has to do with what we might call our spiritual lineage or heritage or birth. So you got you to gotta see what John's I mean talking about here. He, he's basically saying that everybody in the world falls into either one of two camps. I mean, there's, there's no middle ground. You're either of the devil or you're of God. Now, I mean, you know, we, we don't talk like this. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to say you're a child of the devil. But Jesus said that to people. You remember that? He straight up called them You're of your father, the devil. And that's what, and John, that's what John is saying. I mean, he's not here happy about it, but what he's saying is he's just saying the nature of spiritual reality and the nature of spiritual reality is this, is that ultimately every person is either one or the other. We're either of the devil or we're of God. The entire world is one or the other. To walk in sin as a manner of life, John says, is to reveal that 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 you're of the devil. Why, John says, because the devil has been sinning From the beginning. So the question is do our thoughts, attitudes, and actions reflect those of Satan or of God? Because the two are diametrically opposed. They're diametrically opposed. And so and and to whom we belong, John says, will must be manifested by our lives. And so what story does our lives tell? about who we belong to. Either we live lives of self-giving for the glory of God and and the eternal and temporal good of others, or our lives are basically just me doing me and you doing you. That is the mantra of the world, and I promise you that's the mantra of Satan. Because think about what's in that phrase. I say that a lot because it's just a popular mantra today, and it is the mantra of Satan. Because... When I say, I'm going to to do me and you you just do you, what we're essentially saying is this. I'm the only one who can tell me what to do. Right? That's That's what it means. I'm the only one who can tell me what to do. I'm going to do me. I'm the only one who can tell me what to do. You know the first person to say that? The devil. The devil. I know you're God Almighty and I'm a created being angel, but guess what, God? You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do me. The devil. It's the devil. And it's told in our world and it's told in our culture in a thousand different ways. All you got to do is flip on the radio or turn on the TV. And it's right there being, being spoken, being shown in movies and songs in every possible way. You just do whatever you feel like you need to do to make yourself happy. And if you listen real closely, you can still hear the hiss of the devil at the end saying hey Eve eat the fruit it's going to make you happy and it leads to death every single time and that's why John continues saying the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil so this is one of the clearest assertions in the entire Bible. Identifying Jesus, identifying Jesus with that, that, that first gospel that we quoted often in Genesis three fifteen, or where it says uh, in 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so here we have... The Apostle John, going back, and I just I think, I think he's, he has this verse in mind. And he, and he knows that Jesus is the one who's crushing the devil's head with his heel. Because Jesus is the one who came to destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> Jesus has undone and is to this very day undoing all that the devil has done. Think about it. What Satan came to do, what Satan did, was Satan deceived humanity into death. That's what he does. He lies to you. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. Satan will tell you lies to get you to kill yourself by sinning. Because sin always leads to death. Satan came to deceive humanity into death. Jesus came to bring the truth. And he died to give us life. He came to undo the work of the devil. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes to give, to resurrect, to build up. He comes to undo the work of the devil. In Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. devil came to bring death. Jesus came to give life in himself. And so Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus is the victor. He is the restorer of the world. Jesus, in that parable he told, Jesus is the strong man who, Jesus is the one who came and bound the strong man and is now plundering all his goods. Jesus is the one who cast out demons by the finger of God and therefore the kingdom of God has come upon us. And the king is here. And so God and Satan are opposed, in which, to which we are aligned will be manifested in our lives. And then John continues by saying this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now this is powerful language here. I mean, if you just look at it, it's just powerful language. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So John sees that something fundamental happens to us when we're born of God. And he says specifically that God's seed abides in us. Now, what does that mean? It's not 100% clear. In Jesus' usage, seed primarily refers to the Word of God, which, you know, would make sense. Because, of course, that would change us by abiding in us. And in other places, that's what the Bible says. But in the context of birth, as John's talking about here, I think it makes more sense that John is referring to the, to the principal agent of our spiritual conception. And what I, what I mean by that is the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit physically. We are conceived by the Holy Spirit spiritually. And in fact, John, in his gospel, you know, the same author of this, of this letter, John in his gospel, uh, connects the new birth with the agency of the Spirit in John 3, 5 and following. He says, truly, John's talking to, uh, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so what John is simply saying is this. Is that, <laughs> is that if, we're in, if we're a Christian, if we're a follower of Christ, that means we have been born. Of God. That takes us back to, to last week where John says, beloved, we are God's children now. Right? We're God's children now. You're not who you used to be. You don't belong to the same group you used to belong to, the same family you used to belong to, the same crew you used to belong to. We're God's children now. Right? God's seed abides in us. That is God's spirit abides in us, and that Spirit is changing us. What Paul said, Paul in Galatians 5, he says that, he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. God's seed abides in us, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And that changes us. It changes us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's a lot easier to be unloving And to be selfish and not selfless. And it's a a whole lot easier to be not self-controlled than it is to be self-controlled. And to be be not peaceful instead of peaceful. What are those? Is it something we just work up because we just work a little bit harder? No. It's spiritual fruit. Worked in our life by the power of God. And because God's seed abides in us, He actually says, He says, And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We cannot go on in continual unrepentant sin if we've been born of God. Why? Because God's going to get a hold of you. And he'll mess you up if he has to. But look, he's not going to let his children go. And so John concludes by saying this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So finally, he just restates what he's been saying all along: Do we practice righteousness? Do we, do we love the brothers? And if we do, we know. And if we don't, and if, and, if, and if we don't, then we're not of God. And we can discern and we can tell. Who's a reliable God and who isn't based on these tests? And so the question we just have to ask ourselves is, what about me? What about my life? What story am I telling? Who do I belong to? Is it evident? Is it evident? If it is, if it is, uh, people will know. People will know. And, and, And here's the power of it, too. When we live godly, consistent Christian lives, that adorns our witness. It adorns the gospel. It makes what we have to say about God powerful. Because people know. People know what we are. People know how we're like. And it lends weight to what we have to say. And so that's what we want to do, to be able to boldly proclaim Christ from a life of consistency, a life that says that I have been born of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth.